In 1872, the United States Supreme Court denied Mrs. Myra Bradwell, who had apprenticed, passed the bar exam, and had support from legal professionals, the right to practice law. Their decision quoted the Supreme Court of Illinois' opinion that allowing women to be attorneys was never contemplated. A lot has changed in the legal profession since 1872, but there is always room for improvement. From the Florida Bar's Henry Latimer Center for Professionalism, this is never contemplated. Welcome to another episode of Never Contemplated. I'm your host, Heddle Desai. Although 51% of Americans are women and 38% consider themselves people of color, only 30% of state court judges are, are female and less than 20% of state court judges are people of color. The good news is that this difference, which has been termed as the gavel gap, is shrinking in Florida. As we discussed in our very first episode, today roughly 43% of Florida County Court judges are women and 42% of the circuit and appellate court judges are women. Most of these jurists have been recently elected or appointed. As of September 2020, Governor DeSantis has made 100 judicial appointments with approximately 46 of them female, 33% people of color, including 13% African Americans. These women include former Never Contemplated guests, Judge Rachel Nordby, Jacilla Laurent, and Jessica Costello. But the gavel gap is still apparent on the Florida Supreme Court, which has had only five women total since the first justice in 1985. Justices Rosemary Barquette, Barbara Periente, Peggy Quince, Barbara Lagoa, and Jamie Grosshands. Two of these five were appointed by Governor DeSantis. Judge Lagoa is now a federal judge on the 11th Circuit. Justice Grosshands is the only female sitting justice on the Florida Supreme Court and is our guest today. Justice Grosshands' gender is not the only thing that makes her unique. She's one of two current justices that has experience as a solo practitioner. She is the only justice that specialized in family law before coming onto the bench and the only current justice that was appointed to an appellate state court directly from the county court. Justice Grosshands graduated from Thomas Edison State University with a bachelor's degree and received a law degree from University of Mississippi. While in law school, she clerked for the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice in Washington, D.C., and the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Northern District of Mississippi. After law school, she served as an assistant state attorney for the Ninth Judicial Circuit before going out on her own. Welcome, Justice Grosshands, and thank you so much for joining us on Never Contemplated. I know this isn't your first podcast interview, but for our listeners who haven't heard your story, I wanted to start at the beginning. Is that okay? Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me. Of course. Um, I know that you're from Brookhaven, Mississippi, which has a population of a little under 10,000 people. Tell us what it was like growing up in a small town. Well, you know, it's a very unique experience to grow up. Um, we're the biggest you know, event in the town is when the Walmart came uh, <laughs> to town. 
So you know, it was a wonderful place to grow up. I was surrounded by family. Um, my parents grew up not too too far from there in an even smaller town, uh, if you can imagine that. And so it was just such a wonderful experience uh, to have that family involvement. My grandparents were huge influencers uh, in my life uh, growing up. Many, many nights spent there um, at their house and um, were wandering around outside and climbing trees and all the things that you really want to do when you're a kid. And so I had this amazing um, experience growing up, but I was ready to see a little bit more of, of the world. And so I did not stay there, uh, as we know, but it was an amazing experience growing up. And it's still where I spend every Christmas. I've never missed a Christmas in Brookhaven. Oh, wow. Well, it sounds really idyllic. Um, I know you went to Thomas Edison State College for I did. Uh, for your undergrad. Where is that and what was your major? Well, it's actually based out of New Jersey. And my major was history and social sciences. So kind of the foundational for, what would you say, 60% of law students? <laughs> Where they go, you know, what are you going to do with that history major? Well, I guess I'll go to law school. Well, did you know you wanted to go to law school? I know none of your family were lawyers. Is that right? That's right. I did not. I had never really planned on being a lawyer. I thought, um, you know, there was a serious dolphin trainer uh, period. I was going to be a dolphin trainer. Uh, you know, I was going to be a doctor. I remember all those phases. Um, uh, FBI agent. That was uh, well, I went to DC and, and that, that sparked my interest for a while when I was little. Uh, but I never, you know, never wanted to be a lawyer. I had never met a female attorney prior to going to law school. There were certainly no female judges. I mean, in our area, there weren't very many judges, period. <laughs> I think there were maybe three uh, total for the entire, you know, county area. So I just had not had a lot of interaction or experience in that way. Um, but it just seemed, you know, my mom always said I was really good at arguing. And so that seemed like a natural progression that maybe I could make some money doing that. Well, you ended up going to law school at University of Mississippi, um, but you did clerk uh, in the Justice Department, the Civil Rights Division, while you were there. What was that like going to Washington, D.C.? And is that where you decided that you wanted to be an FBI agent or not be one? <laughs> you know, that is funny. I had I had actually come back and was looking at that. When I went to law school, I had kind of that those were the two goals. I was looking at the FBI, uh, which is one reason that I thought about law school. But the main thing that I wanted to do was be in the civil service uh, and work in an embassy overseas. And I remember reading all about it. And at the time, they really wanted uh, people who were in, you know, you know, who were had a law degree that kind of gave you a priority. So that's really kind of one of the main motivations that I went to law school to begin with. But then, of course, I got to law school. I took the basic classes. And then I started taking all those classes that have really, really helped me in my career, like international law, um, immigration law, none of which I've ever practiced. But I took every international class that Ole Miss offered. I did all of that. And then um, I ended up getting an opportunity to go work with the federal 
government and live in D.C. for the summer, intern at the Department of Justice. And I think that's probably the moment at which I really switched gears um, and decided that I really thought I would do something more along that line uh, than necessarily go go overseas. But yes, it was an amazing experience uh, to be in D.C. Well, um, it sounded like you wanted to be a diplomat and then you shift gears and you came back to law school, you finished up. How did you end up in Orlando? Well, it's that age old, age old story. I met a boy. I'm assuming (laughs) that's your husband that you met. Yes, it is. Just to clarify. Yes, it is. (laughs) <laughs> That's probably good that we point that out. Um, yeah, so I met this boy. His name is Josh, and we um, we did long distance the whole time that we were in a relationship. He was at FSU uh, Law School. I was at Ole Miss Law School. So we we did that, and I think at the time that we got married, we had maybe spent five days in a row together total. So we had we had been dating about a year and a half, but we hadn't spent a ton of time together, and so that was quite a shock when all of a sudden they don't leave um, because you're married. And so we got used to that. And I moved to Florida and settled uh, in Orlando. And it was, you know, it was one of those things I really appreciated. The Ninth Circuit State Attorney's Office was one of the only places that would consider me before I passed the bar. Um, because they, you know, you're trying to get a job lined up before you even took the bar when you're still in law school. And most people were very hesitant about having an out of state person coming in to, to take the bar. And so the ninth circuit was like, Oh, you'll be fine. We know you'll be, you'll be great. And they offered me a job. And so that was a big motivator and how we ended up in Orlando. Well, that's great. You didn't stay at the state attorney's office. You actually went out on your own, right? After a while. But but while you were at the state attorney's office, what kind of cases did you handle? I had the opportunity to do both misdemeanors and felonies. Uh, It's just crazy. The fact that my first day as a lawyer was in the Ninth Circuit Courthouse, which is also the place I was the first day as a judge. <laughs> and so it's just, it's very full circle for me that I got to be in that courthouse um, for both big life events. Um, but yes, I did both felony and misdemeanors. I loved going to trial. I never, again, not something I thought I would necessarily enjoy doing. I had done some in law school, you know, your moot court and mock trial. Um, but I really... Um, enjoyed kind of the appellate side more. Uh, But then I got there and I discovered that being in front of a jury was pretty fun too. And so I was able to, to do the jury trials and um, really that that was just such an amazing experience. Looking back, I did not realize what a great experience it was. Um, It just seemed like we were kind of, you know, we're all young and right out of law school and we're in our, you know, starting our careers. And now thinking about how many trials and how much I learned about people and juries and interactions in just, you know, that amount of time was incredible. Yeah, I've heard from a lot of people that working for the state attorney's office or public defenders, you get so much experience right away. And there's so many mentors. Were there any judges that you particularly remember or maybe think back on that might have been mentors for you? Yes, there were there were so many. Um, I, when I was a state attorney, there were actually mentors within the state attorney's office that are now judges uh, in the Ninth Circuit. Um, you know, Wayne Wooten was my one of them. He was my kind of direct supervisor and the one that 
was just kind of bringing me back to earth a lot. And, you know, he went on to be a judge in the Ninth Circuit um, and just really has always been such an encouragement for me. Uh, one of the county court judges was just his first day on the bench was my first day in county court. And we kind of learned that process together. And then he, we ended up serving on that same county court together uh, when I was appointed. So there's, there's a lot of those full circle moments um, as well. Well, now you're a justice on the Florida Supreme Court, and I think with the exception of maybe Justice Polston, you're the only sitting judge that has put out your own shingle, that had your own practice. Why did you decide to leave the state attorney's office to go out on your own? You know, it just was one of those times. And it wasn't, again, I feel like so much of my life is, well, I didn't plan on doing that. Um, but that's how, that's how it worked. I had a very brief stint, um, working in kind of a civil firm and then went out on my own. And it just, it just all fell into place for me to be able to do that. And then it was sort of helped by other factors. You know, the economy had, kind of crashed in central Florida. It's when the real estate market was crashing. Um, you know, law firms weren't hiring. The state was on a hiring freeze. And so it was kind of necessity <laughs> plus, <laughs> plus, uh, it just seemed like the right time uh, to try that. And, um, you know, Josh was working on a firm. And so I had the ability to be a little bit more flexible. And so I decided to give it a try. Well, we talked about this before, but, um, it was kind of a blessing because it allowed you to be flexible for your family. Uh, how was that having a family and your own practice? Well, at times it was a little crazy. Um, so when I started out, you know, when you're starting out, it's and I was doing primarily criminal defense work. There was a little bit more flexibility, and so I, you know, had a baby, and I was, you know, I kind of would not take a case because those cases don't last as long and you can be flexible and, and work that out. And then as my practice grew and also the children, the number of children grew, uh, then it became, it became trickier. So by the time I had my third child, um, I was doing both family law and criminal defense. And that was a little bit of a mess. I had clients calling me on the day I was delivering in the hospital, knowing that I was having a baby, because I had told everyone I am going to have a baby this week. And this was always the phrase, I'm so sorry to bother you. I know you're having a baby, but and there's not much you can do with that. But, you know, try to help and move on. Well, that's what we end up doing in our lives, balancing everything, it seems like. But your family law practice uh, gives you a special perspective, especially on the Supreme Court. I don't think that there are any other justices that actually specialized in family law. Do you think that's going to be helpful to you? Or are there any special insight that you might have that the other justices might not have? Yeah, I think so. I think family law is such an interesting area of practice because you are seeing people many times at their at their worst and, and in a incredibly stressful time of their lives. Um, I had actually said if I hadn't become a judge and I had stayed practicing family law, I was going to go back to school and get some sort of degree in counseling or psychology because there was so much 
of that that went into the job of being a family law attorney. And I just, I felt like being able to help people, um, not only in a legal way during that time, but also, you know, as a, in a, in a more personal way, uh, was, was a special way to practice law. And I think it's very unique to family law, um, not something that you see in your just average law practice. And so I do think being on the Florida Supreme Court as the only one with family law experience, as they all like to tell me, um, when they pass over any questions to do with family law, uh, to me or any committees or anything like that. Um, I do think it gives me a very unique perspective. I was talking to one of the, um, committees the other day, the rules committee, family law rules committee. And, you know, that is a thankless job. I am so grateful for the time that they spend in a committee form going through these rules, sometimes line by line, word by word to try to come up with what works best to make sure that we have, you know, access to the courts, that we are, are fair and equal in our treatment and that we have prompt, efficient administration of justice. Um, and that's all, you know, the goal for them. And just being able to look at them and say, I know how these rules affect individual lives in the state. Personally, I understand that. And I will read every single one. I will read every single line. I'll send, read everything you send me because I do have this very personal connection knowing how those rules then turn around to affect how family law cases are handled, how quickly they're resolved. Um, and, and I know how important that is. So it was good to be able to look at that. I think, I think there's always that appreciation when you realize um, that someone is connecting and they understand that all that work you're putting into it is worth it. <laughs> so I appreciate being able to, to give that uh, to, those, to those committees. Well, let's give a shout out to all the people who serve on, on rules committees uh, for the Florida Bar, because yes. if, they, if it's a thankless position, let's thank them right now <laughs> on air. They work really hard. Yeah. Well, speaking of committees, um, I know in private practice, you were in a lot of professional groups. What kind of programs or, or associations were you involved in, in the Florida Bar or the local bar? I, you know, kind of that assortment that you generally um, do, and you have the women's law group and you have the ends of court and those types of things that I was fortunate enough to be in. Um, and then I also was able to um, volunteer with Orange County, um, Florida, Orange County Bar Association has this incredible legal aid organization. I think it's quite frankly, I think it's the best in the state, although there might be an argument on that. Um, but I really, they're just so top notch and they had a great guardian and litem program, uh, that I was able to, um, to volunteer with and to be involved with. And I really appreciated that probably more than anything I was involved in that and the, um, the place for children. That was one that I think gets very overlooked, but Orange County, um, kind of in association with the women's organization and the young lawyers and some of the other provided, um, a basically a, a short term, you know, by the hour nursery in the courthouse so that people who had court hearings could drop their younger kids off and be able to go up to the courtroom. And I always felt like that was such an undervalued, underappreciated service that we were able to offer uh, to people um, 
you know, given that you don't really want to take your three-year-old up to court with you. And so I really appreciated being able to volunteer with that, um, to raise money and that type of thing as a lawyer. And, and those, those type of activities are always the ones you look back and remember. Well, now that you have the platform of the Supreme Court, what kind of professional activities or projects are you involved in or would you like to promote? You know, I think probably my number one passion for among the legal community top is is civility, proper, you know, professionalism, um, civil discussion, civility in general, probably what my concern is just kind of about civilization as a whole right now. (laughs) And so, you know, I think that anytime I am asked or invited or are able to talk about that, I think that that's so important. Of all the people in the world, uh, lawyers should be the best at being able to communicate professionally with people they disagree with. Because uh, that's what we do for a living, um, is that you have a disagreement, you represent two different sides, and you come out on the other side. You don't have to be enemies. You can still be, you know, you, you're, this is your job, and at the end, you're still friends. And I have had that experience so many times um, with lawyers, and I think that translates into just sort of the public at large and the way that, you know, we treat each other and that you may not agree with everything that someone else agrees with. That doesn't mean you can't have a discussion and the respect for that other person. So I would say that those things are kind of broad, top um, interests. But on another level, I would say I am always willing, happy, and ready to talk about pro bono work. Um, It is so important in our state. We have so many people um, in the state who are just at that income line where they're not necessarily, they're not going to be indigent, but they cannot afford an attorney. And that is such a huge part of our population. And they have serious legal issues. And just being able to encourage that kind of pro bono effort and the ability to develop tools for people to help themselves, whether it's pro se forms, uh, pro se websites, anything that helps people understand this legal system, uh, I think is vital and so, so important. And so I'm always willing and, and happy to talk about that and, and encourage in any way I can. Well, the civility, um, issue has been a theme among all of our guests. In fact, I think one of our guests called attorneys that we should be ambassadors for civility and examples for the public at large, because we do have such a unique skill set in arguing, but being civil about it um, and getting things done without violence or, you know, being nasty. And the pro bono has also been a theme uh, among our guests. So I'm glad that you'll be pursuing that and promoting that as well. I want to switch gears and talk about how you became a judge and why you became a judge. Um, You had a pretty fast track through uh, the state judicial system being appointed in 2017 as a county court judge. Then you leapfrogged the circuit court. You went directly to the fifth DCA within a year. And then within two years, you're now sitting on the Supreme Court. I want to ask you questions about all three of those positions, but I'm going to start backwards. Your appointment to the Florida Supreme Court was quite public, but you seemed so graceful in in how you handle that. How did you, what were you thinking and how did you handle all the aspects and moving parts of, of that situation of your appointment? 
Well, you know, anytime you're kind of thrust into the limelight, uh, it's it's a dramatic a dramatic transition for sure. Um, I've actually been thinking about this this week because it is my one year week. Uh, so I have Congratulations. been on the court. Yes, thank you. <laughs> so I've been on the Florida Supreme Court for what I think one year and two days now, and so it's been. Um, you know, I, I actually have been thinking. I was looking back at some pictures and thinking about that crazy few days, and you know, I think at the end of the day, the way I tried to come into the role was that I was willing to serve, and that's that's the way I've I've approached any of the offices that I've been able to hold. When I was appointed to be a county court judge, I was so excited uh, to be a county court judge. And if I hadn't been allowed to serve as a county court judge for the rest of my career, I would have been happy to do that. I was willing to serve. And that was the way that I was called to serve at that moment. And that's how I felt about the fifth. And so that's what I tried to approach the, the, the Florida Supreme Court with is, you know, this is if I am needed to serve in this role, I will do it. And if not, I will love being a fifth DCA judge out of the limelight. And so I think that helped me handle a lot of that was just my perspective and that it's not about me. You know, I, I can't take this personally. Um, I, it's, it's not personal. Um, I mean, it might be for them, <laughs> but I can't take it personally because it's about the role and I'm here to serve. I'm here to do my job. I'm here to uphold the constitution and, you know, decide the cases that are in front of me. That is what I am called to do. And I'm going to do that day in and I'm going to do that day out. And I'm not going to be affected by all the noise around me. And so that's just how I kind of had to handle that quick transition. Um, it's definitely not with an inner focus on me because it was not about me. It's about the role. Um, and I am just grateful and fortunate to be able to be placed in it. But again, it's, it just, I had to not think of it as, as a personal, uh, a personal thing. So that's, that was how I handled the transition as gracefully as, as one can <laughs> into that. And then, you know, it did, it, it kind of tapers off a little bit and, and then you do, you just do your job day in and day out, just like any other job. Well, you talked about public service and I know that's one of the reasons why you wanted to become a judge in the first place. What are the other reasons that you decided to put your hat in the ring and what was the application process like? becoming even the first the county court judge appointment right. process? Well, the first time I really thought about being a judge was hearing a speech by a judge in Orange County. John Jordan gave a speech at a luncheon and really just encouraged people to think about this life and think about being a judge. And um, he said this funny thing. He said, think about the worst judge you know. You'll be better than them. <laughs> So I've thought about that often. And so I thought, you know, I remember looking at my husband and saying, I, I think I might want to do that someday. And so that was probably the first point I even started thinking about it or moving, thinking I was kind of considering moving in that direction. Um, and it was pr at that point, I also realized how much I cared about the role of the court, the decisions that are coming down, all those types of things were things that I cared about. I watched, you know, U.S. Supreme Court decisions being handed down like people watch the Super Bowl. You know, I was just in front of the TV waiting to see what would happen. And, you know, I thought if I care this much 
then sitting on the sidelines and and not being willing to serve in this way is really is what really weak. You know, it's it's like I just want to watch and and share my opinions from afar, but not be willing to to engage. And so between those two things, I kind of started getting on that path. And one of the first things I decided is I was going to decide what kind of judge I was going to be before I ever filled out an application. Uh, and I was right to do that because once one becomes a judge, there is much less time to think about what kind of judge you want to be because you have to do it now uh, every day. And so I made it my priority as part of my, what I would say, pre-application process um, is to figure out what I believed about what the, my role would be, what I thought the role of a judge was in general, kind of just looking at, you know, cases and, and prepping in that way so that I understood what it was that I would be if I was a judge. And then um, I filled out my first application uh, to be a county court judge um, in Orange County. I loved county court. It's where I, you know, I, I was as a prosecutor. I did a good bit of criminal defense there. Um, and so I was fortunate enough to, to go through that process. And, you know, it was just looking back now, now that I've done it a few times, I think of all the things I did wrong uh, in that process, but it worked out and I was able to get, uh, you know, I was appointed by Governor Scott at the time uh, to that county court position. And you, know, you just never forget the phone call. I just, he called me at 7.55 in the morning on a Monday morning. He called to tell me that I was going to be appointed and you just realize your life will never be the same. Like it's a complete life change. So well, I want to go back to something that you were talking about that before even uh, filling out the application, you thought about what kind of judge you wanted to be. Did you come up with a judicial philosophy that you wanted to follow? I did. I did. I knew that I was going to be a judge that uh, followed the law, that applied the law as it was written, and that very firmly believed that there was a distinct purpose for the judiciary that is very different than the purposes of the executive or the purpose of the um, legislature. And that part of what makes our country great, part of what makes our country work the way it does as this brilliant experiment is that each branch operates independently and in a separation of powers um, you know, structure. And anytime, you know, I've ever been tempted to, to cross a line beyond what I thought that role would be. Um, it, it always brings it back home that properly applying the law as a judge in my role and staying in that lane, I am upholding 200 plus years of how our constitutional system has operated. Um, and I just, I think that's so important, um, even on a very small scale. You know, when I'm in county court and I am doing my job and only my job and applying the law and, you know, even, and that's where it sometimes was, was the hardest, you know, and now everybody knows what I write. <laughs> 
you know, I write something and, and, and it gets read by a lot of people. You know, when you're a county court judge writing an order, it's really not going to be read by that many people, most likely. And, and there's much more temptation to, to be efficient rather than follow the law or that type of thing. And, and I just remember every time the fact that I had that philosophy so cemented before I ever started this process kept me grounded and, and kept me honest to who, to who I believed I should be. Well, that touches on, you were talking about the difference between county court and, and appellate courts, essentially. What are some things that you found surprising when you moved up to the appellate level and to the Supreme Court that maybe people did, don't think about when they think they want to be judges? <laughs> well, the first, I think the thing about county court our, our circuit, either one, is that you are making so many decisions. Uh, you are making them rapidly, which no one can possibly appreciate unless you've done this, uh, done the job, how quickly you have to make decisions and what it's like to make decisions when all the, everyone's completely quiet and staring at you. Um, because that's the way it is when, you know, you're in the middle of a trial and you have a jury sitting there staring at you and you have the people staring at you and the attorneys staring at you and they're all just waiting for you to make a decision. And it's one of, 500 decisions you'll make over the course of that trial. So, you know, that that's a very unique role. And then you switch and the appellate world is completely different because now you are not making any quick decisions. Every decision is thought through. And then after you think it through, very frequently you put it into words on a page and then you analyze every single word to make sure that's not going to be taken out of context. So it's a completely different process. And then the added layer is now you work in a team. And that's probably the most beneficial thing I learned on the fifth was working as a panel because trial court judge, you're making the decisions by yourself. Pellet world, you are working in groups primarily of three, uh, the way our system is, is established. And so nine times out of 10, you know, it's you and two other people making that decision together. And there's some give and take. Uh, there's some diplomacy, a lot of diplomacy uh, that is required and a good bit of chocolate. I found that if you offer chocolate, um, it makes all conversations better. So when I ended up at the Florida Supreme Court, I brought chocolate because I knew I learned that on the fifth chocolate helps everything. And so that was my one of my first things to contribute to in-person conferencing uh, at the Florida Supreme Court was some really good chocolate. Well, I know that you got appointed during the, the pandemic, so it may not been what you thought it would be like when you came to Tallahassee to serve on the Supreme Court. Is the Supreme Court? I know you offer you ha, you're having in in conference uh, in person conferences. You're giving out co- chocolate, but I think that they're still doing arguments by Zoom. Uh, some of them. How has that been? You know, it's you know until last week I didn't know any different, so <laughs> it really was fine. Was um, last week the first week that yes, you actually so had in person arguments? The first week of September, so it was probably two weeks ago, was the first time we did any in-person. Now, we still did some Zoom. So we did in-person and Zoom a couple of weeks ago. But that was the first time I'd sat on the bench. So almost one year uh, and still not being able to sit on the the real bench uh, until a couple of weeks ago. So that was just 
I feel like the one good part about being involved uh, in this process during a pandemic is I've gotten to spread out my exciting events. <laughs> so I, I started and, and that was exciting and sworn in and that's exciting. And then my, the firsts have been spread out. So the first in-person conference and then a couple of months later, the first time on the real bench and then I'm having my investiture in November. So that's another, you know, kind of first. And so I get, I get more long-term enjoyment. Well, I know that you uh, don't have a lot of time, so I just want to wrap it up with one final question. If you could give one piece of advice to a new attorney in your courtroom, whether it was county court or Supreme Court, what would it be? I think my number one piece of advice for any young attorney is guard your reputation at all costs. There will never be a client that will be worth your name. There will never be a case that's worth you sacrificing who you are. Uh, there will never be an amount of money that will be worth you losing uh, your reputation for honesty and integrity. It, there just will not be. It's sometimes hard when you're in the middle of a courtroom and and you have the pressures of the case and you know you don't you don't pick exactly how the facts have been laid out or, or how the case law has done and and it's your job to argue with that integrity and to uphold this practice in a honorable way. It's what your oath is says you will do. You will uphold the Constitution and you will practice with such integrity. And so I just think that we lose sight of that. And we think, oh, this case or, or this, I'll just tell this one minor fib or, or this one minor misrepresentation to the court. Um, and then once you do, it's so hard to ever get that good name back. So my one piece of advice is guard your reputation. That, that only serves you well in the long run. Long run. Well, thank you so much, Justice Grosshands, for joining us today. And thank you for all you do. Congratulations on your one-year anniversary of the thank Supreme you. Court. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. That wraps up this edition of Never Contemplated. Thanks go out to Rebecca Bandy and Katie Young of the Henry Latimer Center for Professionalism and to Clay Shaw, the technical producer and the Florida Bar's creative support manager. You can find information on how to get involved in the Florida Bar's pro bono programs and various committees on Justice Grows Hands and the Gavel Gap at the Florida Bar website under the Never Contemplated podcast. Thanks again for listening and stay safe. Stay safe.